This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. Today we are in conversation with Dr. Bridget Nash. She is the host of Therapy Show podcast. She's also the chairman of the Institute for Evidence-Based Therapy whose mission is to provide training and support to licensed mental health clinicians working with underserved communities. She is a clinically trained medically psychiatric social worker with over 15 years working in the field of mental health and she herself has extensive training in many evidence-based treatments such as CBT, cognitive processing therapy and eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. We talk about loopholes existing in the mental health care system specifically in a developed world like the United States and also breaking down the therapies from coffee clutch therapy versus the evidence-based therapy why everyone should get trained in CBT that's cognitive behavioral therapy and why India should immediately apply some of these pointers for better infrastructure in mental health. Hi Bridget, welcome to our podcast, The SOS Show and uh, thank you for being a part of it. I I, I saw the amazing work uh, that you're doing Bridget and uh, I want to start uh, the podcast um, knowing more about your sister Sheila whom you lost uh, to mental illness. Would you like to talk about it before we get into your contribution to the mental health care system? Sure. My sister Sheila and I were a year apart growing up. And we were when we were teenagers, um, we, we had a lot of trauma in our family system. And I can remember when she was in eighth grade, we were walking home and she had suicidal thoughts at that point in her life. And she used substances to deal with her, um, to deal with her mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And what happened was I did the same. Like we, you know, back then when we were, when we were teenagers, the way to feel better is to drink and to use substances. So we both, we both did. So we kind of went through this period of our adolescence where we were as you know, we were partying a lot and, and it, and it was, it was a way I always look at people who are using substances as a, as a, sometimes they're used as a solution to sometimes to, to harder problems. And, um, what happened was my parents became very interested in psychology. I mean, this is, my parents were really on the cutting edge. And so mm-hmm. they put us both in a rehab for alcohol use disorder. And we were, we were able to go to this place. I actually ended up going to the adolescent unit when I was 17 years old. And my sister, Sheila couldn't stay with me in the adolescent unit unit because she had turned 18 very early, like that previous year. Mm -hmm. And she was taken up to the adult unit. And what Mm -hmm. happened was I received this phenomenal adolescent targeted treatment for substance use disorder. And my sister, Sheila, she dropped out out of treatment because they really weren't addressing her unique needs. And so she she ended up leaving and having a a, a series of, you know, inpatient, outpatient, um, many different levels of care. And that's why I became very interested in the, in the different levels of care because she ended up, um, passing away at a very young age. It's 47 years old. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what, what was she suffering from? Was it diagnosed? It was, she had multiple diagnoses over the years. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this is what often happens is, you know, people 
go to different places and different therapists and psychiatrists and, and you receive a lot of different opinions. And so I don't really know for sure, but I know that there was, that there's a history of alcoholism in my family. Mm-hmm. And also I was, um, you know, myself having, I had my, myself an issue with alcohol and, um, but the, what came out of that experience for me was I saw that, that, that there was, that there were different ways in which you can approach the problem. And when you're dealing with adolescents, mm-hmm. you really oftentimes only get one shot at treatment. Like you really, really need to catch them early and, and get their attention early. So I was very fortunate to receive some of the best treatment, not only that at that time, because I went to that targeted adolescent treatment center in Pennsylvania, but it also over the years, because I became a therapist and, and I became interested in mental health. And, and I'm as a person who was the client oftentimes, you know, was able to really benefit from some of the newer and cutting edge treatments that were available. And I continued to grow. Um, right. I remember back when I was nine years without a drink, mm-hmm. I ended up, I, I was fortunate to go to another place called the Meadows in Arizona. And this um, treatment center was for codependency. And so here I was nine years sober mm. dealing with a whole new level of family system issues. And they were tr- throwing everything at, at me. Like they were, cause I have such a large, I didn't mention that I have a, I'm one of 12 children. So I have a very large family. And so when I went to the Meadows, they were really helpful in helping me deconstruct some of the issues that were causing my, my failure and my, my you know, I was, I was three years, um, or I was in my fourth year at Columbia university and Mm -hmm. so depressed. And and that's why I I ended up going to the meadows, Mm -hmm. but it it, it helped me get over that issue and continue on to be successful. And now I'm a doctor of clinical social work, um, graduating from Rutgers school of social work. So it just shows you that mental health interventions can be very successful, but they really need to be targeted. Right. Right. Uh, Before I sort of, you know, uh, uh, ask you questions in terms of your uh, work in the field, would you like to sort of, uh, just for our listeners, you were depressed. So how would you sort of classify your depression? Was it like a clinical depression? That's a good question. I have never taken medication for depression myself. Right. Um, so I've never been on any type of antidepressant or, I mean, it was suggested at one, when I was at the Meadows, they were going to, they, the doc, the psychiatrist recommended medication, but I chose not to, to take the medication and haven't really had the, the, the desire to take them, take medication. Um, but I, but again, I'm for, I was fortunate enough to have been exposed to some of the newer therapies available. And so sometimes, you know, therapies like CBT and some of the new body-based therapies can work almost probably just as well as the, as the psychiatric medications, depending on my, like my case was unique. My case was different. Some people do need medication and it's very important that they are able to get that medication and, and, and be, you know, successfully treated. But for me, I right. didn't, I didn't have to take the medication. So when we say, when we say clinical depression, yeah, I, I would say I was clinically depressed, but I don't think that I was, um, I think that some of the underlying causes were able to be addressed. Like, right. like I, like I mentioned the trauma 
of growing up, you know, in, in a huge family uh, mm. uh, with with some issues that were like my parent, my mom was, was an immigrant from Ireland and she had a lot of grief over leaving her family. So there was a lot of gr- grief built into my, fa- my upbringing right. sure. as, a, as sure. an immigrant. Sure. 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 Bridget, tell me you are a clinically trained medical psychiatric social worker with over 15 years working in the field of mental health. Uh, I was a bit sort of, I just wanted to clarify for our listeners that Medical psychiatric social worker is actually not psychiatry. You work with psychiatrist. Yes, it's called health. It's called a, a health social worker in a hospital system. But for me, my department, the department I received my training was right. the Department of Psychiatry at a, a very um, one of the best hospital systems in New Jersey where I live. Right. And so I received this advanced training because I work so closely with some of the you know most amazing psychiatrists. So I, I know a lot about uh, medications. I, I don't prescribe medications and I don't make recommendations, but I know a lot about medications and side effects and, um, and how to help clients notice if there's some issues and, and refer them back to their psychiatrist. I will also point out that I'm, a, I'm a, what what's called a, I'm a, Oh, I'm going to say this again. <laughs> I'm also a part-time lecturer at Rutgers right. University. Right. And right. in my role as a part-time lecturer, I have been teaching since 2014, a course that used to be called psychopathology, mm-hmm. but is now called clinical assessment and diagnosis. So in that course, we teach social workers how to recognize signs of, you know, how to recognize signs of side effects and how to work closely with psychiatry so that we can really help our, our clients and our patients. So it's part of the social work training. And I think that um, it's a very important part of the social work training. Right. Because right. We're, we oftentimes see our clients a lot more than the psychiatrists. We're there weekly. And whereas the psychiatrist may be, a, a, you know, a monthly check-in. Or right. a monthly assessment. Right. I, I'm not too sure if, if we have something like this in India, which is sort of considered the, you know, we are still developing world. So I'm not too sure if we have something like this here, which I think we should, you know, in the mm-hmm. mental health care system. Tell me, Bridget, demystifying the mental health care system in US, where you're based out of a couple of things. Would you like to talk about how the mental health care system in the US work, but with more attention to what doesn't work there? Yes. So in order to understand the mental health system in in the United States, Mm -hmm. we really have to look back at the history of Mm -hmm. how it's developed. And when we think about um, the Community Mental Health Centers Act, which was passed in 1963, Mm -hmm. this law aimed to provide treatment away from state-run facilities and psychiatric institutions and more to treating clients and patients in the least restrictive setting possible so that right. to so that we we were able to protect the civil liberties of mentally ill patients and you know the goal was to protect them and to help actually enhance their recovery and help them become more part of the, of, of the community but unfortunately in the de- in the decades after the law was passed, many people with mental illness who would for- who had, who would have formerly been treated in um, large institutions in an inpatient setting uh, ended up 
oftentimes in homeless shelters, jails. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so in, in the 1970s, one of the other major acts that was passed was the Health Maintenance Organization Act. And that was passed in 1973, which tried to, which, which was to helping to address this issue and create a managed care system in the United States. You know, this was the goal, the goal of the HMO system was to, to promote wellness and to prevent illness. And this became a way of life in America. You know, the main objective was to, to encourage competition in healthcare markets. So there's a, there's a market system at play here um, and to develop alternatives to inpatient hospital treatment and to treat patients in an outpatient setting. And I saw this when I worked even for, um, during the period of time that I worked, because I, I no longer work at this hospital system. I'm, I'm in private practice. Yes. But I, I, even during the time I worked in inpatient psych, mm. I noticed that over the, over the time I worked there, lengths of stay, it's called, it's, it's considered, you know, a length of stay is how long you stay in an inpatient setting. Right. They were re- becoming smaller and smaller. So you were able to um, reach out to the insurance company, get an authorization for a length of stay. And you, you needed to work closely with the insurance company and the insurance company oftentimes decided how long the patient stayed in, in the hospital. Right. Uh, right. And so this was but, like, but, a t- you know, there's no insurance uh, company that caters to mental health in India. We are still fighting for it. So insurance yeah. is not there in the mental health care sector. It, I mean, it, after a long fight, one company has started using it. But but otherwise, there is no insurance in India. But U.S. has this. Yes. And, so and it all came it came out of this this need, you know, to provide services, but also provide them in a costly manner. Um, mm-hmm. but, but what happens is so so managed care for mental health and substance abuse services has caused a has caused a fracture in the relationship between patient and practitioner as many clinicians either opt out of managed care out of the managed care system or have to accept the treatment decisions that are made in coordination with managed care employees who often don't have the clinical experience that the psychiatrist has. So what happens when, when you work in hospital systems is you're working to advocate for your patient. Your patient needs a certain level of care, certain days in the hospital. And you're working with managed care companies to advocate to get more days. And, and, so, and, and so you're talking to somebody um, who's working in an insurance company um, and they are deciding whether the patient receives five days or six days or, or three days. Right. And so it, it creates this tension, you know, in the system yeah. yes. where the, where, where, you know, we often, I, I actually have a podcast about this um, mm. called inpatient psych. Yes. where One of my doctors discuss this at length and sure. it, it creates this, this feeling for, in, for the medical profession that, that, you know, they really know what's best for their, client, you know, or their right. patient, they, the, right. the patient may need a certain amount of days in the hospital, but we're, we're not able to get them oftentimes. So this and, is a huge, huge loophole in the system. Yes. Yes. Yep. Um, so how does this get addressed in the sense that, uh, you know, someone 
is suffering from uh, clinical depression or someone is suffering from schizophrenia or from bipolar, how do they balance it out in terms of uh, the insurance versus the mental health? Well, I think this goes to the different levels of care that I have on my, I, I want to mention that I have a website yes, that, sure. I th- that I think that your audience would really appreciate. And sure. one, of, one of the things that um, when I was, I created this website in my doctoral work at Rutgers School of Social Work. And in this website, I created um, a dropdown for you know, if you look at, there's a therapy, there's a therapy drop down, and then there's the treatment drop down. And you'll even be able to see a little chart that will show you the different levels of care that we have in, in this country. So when you look at the inpatient psych treatment, we, I have a podcast that explains a lot of the, the issues that I'm talking about right now mm-hmm. in, in terms of the doctor and managed care relationship. But when, when, you, when what happens in the United States is that we, we like to provide people with the least restrictive environment. And so we have a solution called a, a partial hospitalization program. And so that's where a patient can go to the hospital every day, Monday through Friday and sleep at home. And so it's, le- it's less restrictive. Um, it's less costly. And cause you're not paying for the, for the, for the bed and, and, and the nursing and all of the staff. And so that's how we've solved it. We, we, we oftentimes use inpatient psych in this country as a, as a stabilization. And then we, we refer to clients to partial hospitalizations. That's the next step down. And then after that, there's um, the intensive outpatient program that's in between partial hospitalization and outpatient, like one-on-one therapy, individual mm-hmm. therapy. So, so mm-hmm. the IOP is three days a week or maybe two days a week. And you have somebody who's providing your medications and checking in with you and helping you navigate becoming more functional. But British and US, you know, the whole mental health care system, in fact, the whole care system is much more advanced and compared to a place like India, there, there is a respect for an individual citizens, but it's not there in India where it's still, it's, it's a huge taboo still to even talk about it and forget the infrastructure. It, it's in shambles. Mm-hmm. So tell me about in terms of the most common mental health disorder there. Plus, uh, do you think that it's still a taboo there when people talk about mental health in U.S.? I think there's a sh- there's becoming a shift in people feeling more comfortable talking about mental health issues in this country. Mm, mm. And that's one of the goals of my podcast is to, and I think it's one of the goals of your podcast as well mm. is to make, is to make it less of a stigma to talk about mental illness. Yeah. And I have also, I, I actually interviewed professor Corrigan, Patrick Corrigan, who is, his entire research is is on reducing stigma with mental illness. And he talks a lot about how to reduce stigma. There's actually, he has a program in his, in his research that he set up. And so we have been really working hard to de- demystify mental health issues, to destigmatize them. A lot of people who are famous have come out and talked about their mental health issues and, and, And these are people who are successful, people who have overcome mental illness. 
people like Dax Shepard, who has a podcast mm-hmm. and he, where he talks about his issues with, with substance use disorder. And, and so I do think that this country is doing really a lot of work at reducing the shame of mental illness, making right. it more um, able where people are able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But we have a long way to go. I mean, we yeah. just really do. We, every, you know, I think that we need to hear from more people who are successful and yes. who have overcome. And that's why I, I talked a little bit about my story. I have benefited from, from the best mental health treatment and I have become functional and yes. we need to hear more from people like that. Sure. Sure. Bridget, tell me, tell me uh, with your experience, do you think that uh, the research levels of mental illnesses are adequate because, you know, I've been asking this question often on uh, to a lot of people who have shared their experiences that what is your functional level day to day when you're, you know, when you're talking about uh, schizophrenia, when you're talking about a bipolar, how much do you, how much are you able to function? And there are a lot of people who are taking medication for 30 years, from 35 years, but the level to function remains 20, 30, 40% despite the medication, despite the medical research. What is your experience when it comes to U.S.? Well, I think that the U.S. is learning a lot from a lot of other countries as well. It's not, uh, uh, there are other countries that are doing a lot of research as well on right. mental illness, like Europe and Norway and some incredible I, I just recently read an article about how in Norway they have a program to treat schizophrenia using no medication. And I just recently interviewed um, Elaine Walker, Dr. Elaine Walker, who is what, a very renowned expert on schizophrenia. And sure. she, she talked about how they're using CBT and it's mm-hmm. a certain type of CBT. And this is, this speaks to your research question Right. We have these amazing research programs where they're successfully treating patients with really serious mental illness, like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, uh, major depressive disorder. And you mean 100 percent? No, I don't think that I I don't. Nobody would ever say 100 percent. Right. Right. But really what you're looking for are are people improving their functioning and becoming more resilient and becoming able to, to participate in society. And what they found, what she mentioned in the podcast is that oftentimes the medications that the the high doses of medications that people take can can contribute to, um, can, can oftentimes make it difficult for the full recovery. And so she's very interested in some of the newer cognitive behavioral therapy programs that are being, um, right now researched, and shown to be very effective for even um, being able to modify your your voices. Like the you know when we think about having having schizophrenia, oftentimes there's the, you have the hallucinations or or, or the delusions, and mm. and having the ability to use CBT in this very and it's not traditional CBT; it's a modified version of CBT that addresses this. Um, specific population and they're, they're really uh, achieving excellent results. And, and so that's very promising. Now, one of the issues that we have in this country is taking that, those amazing research results that are going on in universities, in larger um, treatment centers and bringing them into the community 
and making them just every day. And that's, that's why I, I really believe that the training piece is so important because when we have these amazing therapies that we know work, but we're not able to bring them into the community because the, maybe the therapists aren't trained at the same level as these university researchers, then, you know, that's what, that's the gap. That's the, the gap that I think that um, the Institute for Evidence-Based Therapy is trying to overcome because, because we need to provide training of these more sophisticated therapies to mm-hmm. community, to, to community therapists. And it can be done really manualized. And I think that a lot of times therapists are very, they don't really like the word manualized. They don't like the, mm-hmm. they don't like the manual um, or sticking with the manual. But I think um, one of the things that another researcher who I interviewed said, her name is Dr. Patricia Resick, who created cognitive processing therapy for, this is another cognitive therapy, but it's called cognitive processing therapy for PTSD. We often can become renewed in our, in our love of the, of the therapy models because we see how effectively they work. And right. that's, that was my experience. That's what, what drove me to create this podcast. And, and it drove me to create the Institute because I was trained in CBT. That was my first training when I became an outpatient therapist. And I started to see my patients get better very quickly. It was mm-hmm. like where I saw them going in and out of the hospital and, and, you know, not really accelerating in their growth. Then I started sticking with the manual and, and doing CBT as it was taught to me in the, in the Beck Institute. And they started not only getting better, but not needing me for that very, for very long. And I, I found that to be a success, right? Then the next, the next thing I learned was EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Mm -hmm. And I began to be trained in that and supervised closely with my supervisor. Mm -hmm. And that really brought me to a new level of religion when it came to using the manual because it's a very manualized type of therapy. You, you, you have to follow the program. And so I started to see my patients get better even quicker. Mm-hmm. And then again, I, I started my training in CPT, cognitive processing therapy. And it's a, it, it just, it makes you very excited as a therapist to see how quickly people get better mm-hmm. using, using the manual. Right. So you're saying that a therapy worked faster. It was, uh, it had it had it worked faster. It had more effect on the patients compared mm-hmm. to the medications that they were being pumped into in, into I'm their not, systems. I'm not saying that. That's that, that's actually not what I'm saying. What I'm mm-hmm. saying is that there are um, cases where CBT has been shown to be, and and, and not only CBT, like interpersonal mm. psychotherapy, right. you know, JAMA had that, had that excellent article about how it's been shown to be, you know, almost as effective or as effective at times mm. to medication, but, but I'm not, a, I'm not a psychiatrist, so mm. it's kind of outside my scope, but right. what I was, but, but what I was comparing it to was me and my my ability to help my patients before I was mm-hmm. trained and then after I was trained. Right. So one of the people I interviewed for my podcast, his name is Dr. Doug Behan. He refers to it as how you doing therapy. And, and that's kind of the, the before I was trained, I, I would meet with my clients and say, how you doing? How was your week? You know, it was more of like mm-hmm. a conversation. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's a little bit lazy, right? And so when I began to be trained in CBT and EMDR, I would, my clients would come into my office and we would get right to work. And what clients found is that they had new tools. Like not only were they, they learning about themselves, but they were developing the tools that they could then take home and use in their own lives. So mm. um, that's, that's the CBT model. The CBT model is. So that was more empowering. The CBT model was yes. more empowering for the patients who were given and they could sort of learn it themselves. But tell me, you've mentioned this about a coffee crush therapy versus the evidence-based <laughs> therapy. <laughs> that's my provocative <laughs> statement on my, on my website. <laughs> I call it interesting. The, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's supposed to be a little provocative because it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's what, it's what Dr. Doug Behan was talking about. And he, mm. he, he, he has a website called what works in therapy. And, yeah. and it, it's, it's about, um, you know, it's, we're not our therapy. We're not our clients, friends. We're not our clients, friends. We are our clients. They're hiring us as a professional to help them go from having symptoms of mental illness that are, that's affecting their functioning to having less symptoms of mental illness and more functioning. So they have a, what I I think it's, it's important to know is that there is a goal that has to be established right away when, when it comes to treating people with mental illness. And oftentimes what happens is that the client will come into therapy in the first session and like tell you their whole life story. And that can be like the last time you ever see them, because if that's the entire content of the first session of therapy, then you haven't really created a treatment plan, you know, and, and, and sometimes it, 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 you know, less is more like if it's important to get focused on what are your, what are your specific goals in treatment? And then what are, what are we going to do to, to make that happen? Um, to, what, what are the object, objectives that we are going to do? To, what are the steps we are going to take to make recovery possible for you? And then if you do that in that first session, the patient comes out of this first session wanting to do the work. And, and I think that, you know, that is very much an education piece that therapists have to do for their clients. Like, look, we have a job to do here. We, we have um, a goal in mind. Here are the steps. So depending on what the client is presenting with, the therapist formulates a case conceptualization of what we're going to do together. And then the therapist presents it to the client, not um, it, oftentimes it should be presented in, in written form. Like here's, here's what we're contracting to do together. And then and then this, then over the next few weeks, we take those steps together and right. the client improves. If, right. you know, and here's the other thing. The, the, the most important thing is you really need to have a couple of different modalities in your toolbox. So if the client has um, an issue with depression or anxiety and doesn't have a lot of trauma, then you're going to work with CBT or something like that, Right. But if the, if the client has trauma, then you want to bring in CPT, you want to bring in EMDR, you want to bring in a, a tool that addresses that type of trauma. If a, mm-hmm. if a patient has personality disorder, you may want to bring in, let's say they have a, a, a borderline personality disorder, you want to bring in dialectical behavior therapy. Mm-hmm. And so what you're doing is you're, 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 it's like, it's as if you were, if your client comes in with a different medical illness, 
right. you wouldn't give them the, you wouldn't give them the same medication. You would sure. give them the medication that's targeted for that specific illness, and right. then they would they would get better. So it's right. important that you're very clear on what on what the plan is and what the diagnosis is, so that you can formulate how are we going to get to relative like you you mentioned 100 percent recovery. We don't really talk about that. We talk about how can we improve your functioning? How can we right. reduce your symptoms of depression to get you subclinical? Right. And then the, the client can keep doing the work with themselves, you know, over the years, if they have the, right. the tools that are um, right. taught to them. Right. Right. So functioning is what, you know, the attention is being paid to and the therapy is very empowering for the patients. But of course, they need to consult their psychiatrist and see what kind of medications can ba be balanced with the therapy aspect of whatever they're going through. Correct? Absolutely. And yeah. one of the a psychiatrists, well, a really great psychiatrist will, will see the value in an excellent social worker or an excellent mental health professional. And they'll work together really carefully with, for the benefit of the client. So mm -hmm. I've always had really excellent relationships with psychiatry. And there are times when I will, you know, say, say to a client, you know, really, you need to see a psychiatrist and it's been very successful, but you want to make sure that you're working in collaboration with the team and that you're working with psychiatrists that really um, also see that sometimes it's a, it's a, when we, in social work, we have a psychosocial perspective. We see the, the, the patient, it's actually a bio psychosocial spiritual perspective where we, we see all of these different factors that may contribute to the client's distress or the client's health. And right. so we want, we, we want to make sure we, we look at the whole system. And I think psychiatry does that, but I think they also help rely on on social workers, they rely on psychologists and mental health professionals. Right. Um, and that's a good balance. I right. would not, so, not, I would not, not recommend med medication if it was indicated. Right. And Bridget, tell me about the mobile services that are there in mental health care system in US, because we in India, I think they tried to put the mobile services, but it sort of did not take off. It was grounded. So uh, tell me how impactful and, and I think they're very important. For example, if you want to call up someone in the middle of the night, these mobile services can be sort of really, really handy. Yes. And I have a podcast called um, mobile. It, it's a podcast I did with somebody who's who, and, and I, I want to just clarify that this is in New Jersey and right. New Jersey is a resource rich state. Right. There are many states in the United States that are not, and, and mm -hmm. they, they're actually, you know, resource deserts when it comes to mental health services. Right. So in New Jersey, we have different counties within the state and each county has its own um, mobile services. And these are not used to treat patients. Uh, these are used in emergency situations. And, um, and oftentimes a family member will call and, and there are, um, ways to call into the central, um, county office, or there's a, there, there's a central number that you can call and, and receive a visit from a mobile. This is a trained, um, mental health professional who's extensively trained in mobile services. And they oftentimes work along with police officers. And my podcast on this topic, I think is really exciting because mm. it shows that you can really help intervene in the community. 
And sometimes the person will need to go and have an inpatient stay or they'll need to go and be stabilized in an an emergency room. Um, But it's a powerful way to help people in the community. Um, And so, but again, I I don't think that's across the board universal in in the entire country. I think, you know, there are certain, you know, each state has its own system and we we happen to have a really good one when it comes to mobile services. Right. And what do, what are the uh, costs that are involved in uh, the treatment of mental health there in U.S.? Because here in India, the costs are humongous. If you are, uh, you know, suffering from a bipolar or schizophrenia and you would sort of get admitted to a private pract- uh, hospital, the costs really shoot up. What What's there in U.S.? Well, I think the costs are really exorbitant, too, in this mm. country. Mm. And we do have uh, private insurance. Um, and we also have Medicaid and Medicare, but one of the things I, I did did a paper, um, I didn't publish it, but it was a paper on from, for school on eating disorders and eating disorders can be very serious and they can sometimes even be life threatening. And one of the things I found in my research on eating disorders and eating disorder treatments treatment is that depending on whether you have commercial insurance or not, will decide whether you have the ability to go to an inpatient residential treatment center. And so having that commercial insurance really is, uh, you know, and, and not only having commercial insurance, having good commercial insurance with a, what's called a rider for, um, for mental health or a rider for um, residential treatment will mean the difference of whether you can, attend a residential inpatient stay or whether you can't. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people who who are in underserved communities have Medicaid or Medicare even. And I remember calling all of these treatment centers across the country and they didn't take Medicare even. And so, you know, you have this disparity of, um, of access to care depending on whether or not you have good insurance. And right. I think that's, I think that's the case also with um, even not just eating disorder treatment, but other tr- mental health treatment. I think that having good insurance is helpful, mm-hmm. but one of the things that's happening a- a- in our country is that because of the, of the managed care situation, many psychiatrists in the, in my area, at least are not taking insurance Mm-hmm. And so at, like in India, it's, it can be very, very expensive to yeah. see a psychiatrist. And, mm-hmm. and so that's, that definitely um, puts a barrier up for people to be able to see not only a, 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 a psychiatrist, but a really trained and mm-hmm. an excellent psychiatrist, which sometimes can mean, you know, the psychiatrist create, you know, is able to really target in on that treatment and not have to prescribe, you know, the multiple polypharmacy uh, medications right but what uh, what about the what about people who are living on the streets how are they taken care of in the united states yes well i think that um most hospital systems will treat people um you know especially in my area they're not going to ask you um whether you live on the street or not but Mm -hmm. i don't but so you can you can go to an emergency room and 
we have excellent emergency rooms in New Jersey. Um, and so you can get treated treatment, but again, as I mentioned before, you know, your mental health issue is not the only issue that you're dealing with. If you're dealing with homelessness, you're dealing with a major psychosocial issue. And so we want to make sure that, that all of these other areas are addressed. I mean, you, you know, you really need to address the social aspect of being homeless and right. it's getting harder and harder to find I know when I worked at, at at the hospital system I worked in, we had a wonderful place called the Market Street Mission. And if we had um, a client that or a patient in the hospital system who need who was homeless, you know, they would help take them. But now, um, oftentimes they don't really want to take patients who are on a, a ton of medications, and so it was harder and harder over time to to discharge to a place that was a homeless shelter or a mission because there's a lot of, you know, liability and a lot of issues that go along with that. So right. it's, it's definitely hard. I mean, we have some benefits through the, through County systems um, in this, in this country, but it's really getting harder and harder to find people the right supportive care that will help them out of homelessness because sometimes homelessness is a symptom of, of mental illness, you know, that, mm. that, that cognitive functioning that yes. can come along with maybe schizophrenia. And so if we can improve the functioning that, and, and help somebody with their schizophrenia symptoms, then we can have them become more functional and even perhaps get a job. And, and so I've seen, I've heard of successes over and over again. Um, one of the people who, who does a lot of work in this result. And this, one of the people who I interviewed who does a lot of work with homelessness is Dr. John Norcross. Dr. John Norcross um, sees a, a certain amount of patients who are homeless. And, and, and one of the stories he tells in the podcast with me is about how he was able to work with somebody on their mental health issues. And, and slowly over time, their homelessness um, was, was, was resolved and they were able to be functional and have a job and have a relationship. And it's just, that's, those are the success stories that we need to have more and more. Right. Right. Uh, tell me, Bridget, if you would like to just, uh, as a closure, a couple of things that, uh, the world, world over we can do to make, the entire mental health struggle or whatever you call it, the system more efficient for all of us. One of the most exciting things, and it relates to training that I've seen that really made me really thrilled was a doctor in Zimbabwe, Dr. Dixon Chibanda. He's a psychiatrist and his story is remarkable. He came up against a real shortage of psychiatrists and providers who are able to prescribe medication because it's not, it's not just psychiatrists who are able to provide medication. Sometimes you can um, receive treatment from an, uh, from an advanced practice nurse or a nurse practitioner, but there was, um, there was a shortage in his area. And what he did, which was groundbreaking, and there is a Ted talk about, um, about this is that he trained grandmothers in mm. CBT. So it's not, so he didn't just train them in, in mental health. So Dr. Shabanda trained grandmothers in cognitive behavior therapy and the results were remarkable. And so this shows you 
the, this shows the world that we can be very innovative and that not only is training essential for mental health clinicians who are working with, with patients and, and clients in the community, we can train grandmothers to, they created this friendship bench where they would have grandmothers who were again, trained in CBT sitting on a bench and they would receive people sitting down next to them, telling them what was going on in their lives. And grandmothers would use the cognitive model and teach them about their thoughts and how their thoughts affect their feelings and their, and their behavior. And, and then what happened was if the, if, if the client, if the patient or the client needed a higher level of care, they would have a phone and they would call the hospital. So it was being in those moments where they, they, could assess risk that they mm. would then be able to move them up to a higher level of care. But in a lot of cases, they didn't really need to, mm. and they would schedule an appointment with them to come back to the friendship bench. And um, so the research is conclusive that, that this not only helped the client or we, we shouldn't even call them clients. They're just people who are attending the friendship bench, yeah. but they did another study on the grandmothers and mm. the grandmothers were because of the of the work that the grandmothers were doing on the friendship bench, they achieved a higher rate of life satisfaction because of the work that they were doing. So it benefited not only the the people who were attending the bench and, and, and sitting with the, with the grandmothers, it was actually helping the grandmothers as well achieve a level of of happiness and joy um, mm. and contentment. And so I just found that to be the most innovative yes. thing. And, and so we have lots of grandmothers here and in India, and we have also <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people who, who are working in the, in, you know, in religion. And, and mm. I know that I, I have a friend who's very interested in all of this and she's, she's, she's a minister. Right. And so she's, she's learning about CBT to help her, her, um, constituents in her, in her church. So it's, it's can be something that we can really give to people if we really understand the model. And, and that's why I'm, I'm actually one of those people who is a little bit rebellious and I don't really like mm. to follow the rules. <laughs> I don't right. really like, as you can see, as at 17, I ended up in a rehab, but, um, <laughs> but, but so I don't really like rules. Right. But yeah. when I, but, 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 but by following a model, and again, you need to have that ability to connect with your patient and you need to have that ability to create rapport. You can't not have that. Like you need the, the, the human factor. Um, but, but, with CBT, I think you can have both. Like you can have the human factor and also the model and, um, and really achieve results. And, and again, you met, you, I think you liked the, um, some of the newer therapies like, um, emotional freedom technique. Yeah. And I just wanted to, I wanted to mention that because emotional freedom technique like EMDR it is they consider this the fourth wave in in treatment and theory because it's really addressing the the physiological aspects of mental illness and right. also teaching like you're actually taught how to had EFT it's called emotional freedom technique which is yeah. another it's another word for tapping um they use a tapping um approach to helping people quickly um 
resolve trauma. They're using it for eating disorders, but then you, you, you learn how to do the, the technique on yourself. And so here again is another way in which we have to get creative. Like we have to teach our clients how to be their own therapist sometimes. <laughs> right, right. I think that that would be brilliant, you know, teaching everyone CBT and, but, but tell me if, if, if I, if I don't want to take medications and if I just want to rely on therapy, do you think that's an advisable thing? I think I will tell you what, what my close friend and psychiatrist says, he mm. says, he'll say it depends, mm. right? It all depends. Like, there's no way to say, like, again, I went to a, a treatment center at 17 and, and, and then another one at, at when I was nine years sober where, you know, I think medication was discussed and I chose mm -hmm. not to, we, we believe in social work in self-determination and that the, the patient has, has self-determination, but when it comes to medication, there are targeted medications. And I think that if it's indicated, I don't think that you should close your mind to it. I just think that you should make sure that you're working with a very competent psychiatrist and that your, your, your needs are being addressed individually. And, right. uh, and so I would, I, I think it always depends on every client, every patient is different and has different needs. And so, um, sometimes with medication and I, you know, I think that medications can often speed up a, a CBT course of treatment. And mm. so you, you, so sometimes used in combination. And I think Dr. Beck talked about this on the, uh, on the podcast used in combination can mm. really accelerate the growth and then, um, and then make it so that maybe you can come off of the medication, but that is, you know, oftentimes we're talking about antidepressants when it comes to a patient who has bipolar disorder, you know, oftentimes medication needs to be um, sort of factored in through the entire course of treatment. So medication is something that's very personal. It's something that requires that targeted approach. Mm -hmm. It needs to, to be an individualized approach. And, um, and I think that you need to work closely with your, with your provider. Uh, and I think you could have a successful course of treatment. Right, right. Great. Great chatting with you, Bridget. Um, and thank you so much for taking our time and being part of the show. It was my pleasure. It really was. I hoped, I, I really hope the best for all your audience and all, your, all how, do, how should I say that? I hope the best I, for all your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> you, you are doing amazing work. With so are you. I mean, it's all of us are trying to synergize our energies to try and, you know, bring some change to the mental health system because we all have actually gone through or are going through something personal. So I think, I think I hope it all sort of comes together for, for the world. I agree. And I agree. And I think that it, it's people like you who have, you know, a voice and have expertise that is going to change everything. So I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast episode and why CBT and mobile services could be gold for mental health care systems throughout the world and our listeners specifically in India as well. So that's it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the SOS show. In case you wish to connect with us, you have something to tell us. You know where to find us on Instagram, on Twitter, on LinkedIn with EP Log Media, Metaphysical Lab and me. You can just Google and find me everywhere. 